Hi, and welcome to the Eat Move Live 52 podcast. I'm Roland, and right here next to me is my co-author and podcasting partner, Galena. Like the name of our show says, we are here to talk about food, nutrition, movement, and exercise, and everything related to you creating a healthy and happy life, all 52 weeks of the year. to have a special guest today. We met her last year in November when we visited the Markigar Ranch in Northern California. We were really struck by the beauty and harmony of the environment there. We saw these rolling green hills, how they met the ocean and the sky, and it honestly felt like we were taken thousands of years back to a time when people and nature were in harmony. We got to experience the deep, nourishing quality of the local food, and we learned a little bit about how humans and land can have a hopeful future together. Of course, we wanted to know more and knew that our listeners would love that too. In the meantime, our guest, Donega, has written a new book, and we just finished reading that. We'll tell you more about that too. Donega has a background in wildlife tracking, holistic management, and permaculture. Along with her husband, Eric, and their four kids, Donega lives in a coastal ranch in San Gregorio, California. Donega is passionate about finding ways to regenerate lands and community through practices that build soil, sequester carbon, capture and purify water, and enhance habitat. Donega has an immense passion for the natural world and helping others live a life of balance with the earth and all living things leading a life of example where her own actions are deliberated into the health of the future generations. And we really experienced that when we visited the ranch. So we're very excited to have her on. Welcome on the show, Donaga. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for joining us. It's great to have you. Yeah. So jumping right in, tell us a little bit about your day. What does it look like living on a ranch? Is it that much different than the life, say, of your great-grandparents who had their homestead? And what do you do in a day? And how do you balance all the care for the ranch, the customers, motherhood, homeschool? What is kind of like a day in the life of Donega? Yeah, well, uh, it's about 10 a.m. here in California right now. And uh this was the first chance I got to sit down and um, stop with my, my chores and a chance to do do some of the other things that, that I can do in life. And I'm sitting here drinking some uh, bone broth that I drink every morning, and it's super nutrient-dense and just sort of keeps me going and helps me with the, the rest of my day because the mornings are, are very full. And uh, my book is called Dawn Again and D-A-W-N because I love the dawn. I greet the dawn every morning and uh, oftentimes I'm up a few hours before dawn <laughs> and that's uh, my creative time and that's my time that I can spend alone. I can uh, give thanks for the earth and all the earth provides. I can give thanks for my family and health and happiness. And I can really center myself uh, for for the day. And it was those early morning hours uh, when I wrote 
uh, I wrote the book Dawn again because I could really get into uh, a zone. And uh, oftentimes the only thing that would pull me out of that zone was the the chickens outside uh, the window starting to peck and, and come up. And, uh, you know, sometimes they even peck at the window like, OK, I'm ready to be fed. Come on out. <laughs> Stop writing. <laughs> yeah. So then I would uh, sort of jolt back into, OK, it's time to get out and, and do ranch work. <laughs> and uh, I'm outside every every day and i love it that's my my office is out in nature and uh working with the land working with the animals um my kids are working with me uh everything we do on our ranches raising food everything is safe for the children and you know you think oh of course yeah you're 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 farming and you're growing food it it should be, you know, kids should be involved with it. Mm. But um, that's actually very rare that uh, there's not dangerous chemicals um, that we're uh, in contact with or um, uh, pollution in the air or, um, you know, things that that might be uh, unbearable for, for children to see. Um, our children are, have been a part of our of our ranching since since the beginning, um, and so so yeah, that's pretty much my my day is uh, a lot of chores in the morning. I go out and I move cattle. Uh, I feed chickens and pigs, and uh, this morning I helped. Uh, do all of the pack out for farmers markets. Uh, we sent two trucks off to to farmers markets today, uh, where we can really engage with our customers and tell the story of the land and uh, provide this nutrient dense food that is is so needed uh, right now. So that's great. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how do you? So you're uh, you come from. I guess your family had farming in their background or ranching and so did your husband's. Right. So how did, how do you think your modern day ranch compares to ranches of your ancestors? Yeah. So my, my husband is a sixth generation cattle rancher and uh, I myself did not grow up on a farm or ranch. I grew up in a rural area. Um, we, uh, had, you know, we grew a lot of our own food. Uh, however, that wasn't how we made our living. Um, my great grandparents homesteaded, uh, in Montana. And so my, uh, my grandmother was raised on a homestead and I loved hearing, uh, her stories of, of that life, um, and the hard work and, uh, you know, everything involved with, uh, being very closely connected, uh, with, with your food source. So I think, uh, I, you know, I talk about this in the book a bit when, uh, you know, in a sense, um, I, I'm not real proud of that, you know, that era of how, you know, in a sense, the, the West was settled. And I talk a lot about the, um, you know, the internal conflict that I went through of realizing what my ancestors have done and their types of actions, whether deliberate or indeliberate, um, 
to the indigenous peoples of this land. And I've spent a lot of time with uh, indigenous elders and learning, learning from them and absorbing as much as I can from this ancient wisdom. And uh, so that's very much how we uh, work with our land and work with our soils is that uh, we start with uh, the core ethics and, and values that I've learned from indigenous cultures and uh, from, uh, in a sense, treating the land and treating all life as if we're all related. So, um, treating the blade of grass as, as your kin and, uh, stewarding the land in a way where, uh, you want that life to flourish in, in abundance. So, um, you know, sort of comparing what we do now to what was previously done, sort of to answer your question, I think what we're doing now has never been done in history because what what we're really working on is the cusp of how can we actually regenerate lands and regenerate soils where my own homesteading great-grandparents were already sort of coming into this land that had been stewarded by indigenous people, you know, whether they knew it or not, and so they could just reap those those benefits of really amazing soils that mm. had, uh, you know, that were deep uh, prairie soils from grasslands that had been intact and large herds of bison and abundant game that they could just come in and they could, they didn't have to worry about, you know, um, feeding the soil and building soil because it was already incredibly intact and there was abundant game that they could hunt that, uh, wasn't, um, you know, that, that it, you can no longer, you, you can no longer find that. So, so what we're doing now is very different than what has been done in history. And we need to go beyond and challenge ourselves. Okay. How can we, uh, give back more than, than we take, which is a very different, uh, uh, philosophy than where, you know, the, the homesteaders or the previous agriculture, uh, uh, folks were thinking because they didn't really necessarily have the foresight to be, necessarily mm -hmm. thinking that way yeah so that's where you're yeah, we've read a lot in uh, the last couple of years about permaculture and i mean people call um i think grass farming where it's sort of like a i mean to me it's sort of like a tongue-in-cheek thing like if you but if you're focusing on the grass and all of the systems around it all of the different animals and rotating crops and animals and things like that that sort of puts the puts the perm but the perma in permaculture right and kind of keeps everything sort of self-sustaining yeah absolutely i mean you know you just just look at our our role as like you say grass farmers and uh and 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 really everyone should be looking at their own role in procuring their own food and taking part of the the ecosystem because we are nature 
and what is each of our parts in that bigger story of you know living a life where we're not harming <laughs> the earth and that's where you know I, I go through that journey in my book of discovering gosh even small actions like buying clothes and driving and uh, are are causing this destruction and devastation, the things that I do not believe in. So uh, the book is about my own journey of, you know, going through that intense anger and grief of that realization, and then finding uh, that vision to move forward in a way that I can give back more than more than I take and regenerate. So that's where that's where this gra grassland uh, ranching comes in, because, uh, you, you know, roughly 40 percent of the terrestrial area on this planet is grassland and it wants to be grassland. It wants to be covered in living, growing plants that are taking energy from the sun through photosynthesis and feeding the soil and sequestering carbon and also it wants to be grazed and it wants to have life on it so you know what now these grasslands um the the large herds have been hunted out uh, to near extinction um and those large herds of animals brought so much life to the grasslands and in my book I talk about discovering that for the first time in uh, the wilderness of Idaho when I was tracking wolves. And I remember coming across a, a meadow where the elk had just come and the, the land was just so vibrant um, with saliva and urine and manure and all the I, best you know, stuff. Oh yeah, the microbes were just having a giant party. Yeah, you know, it wasn't like, reading that. Reading that, I was like, it seems like I'd love to roll in that. It sounds yeah. so alive, even though it kind of sounds like ow, saliva and manure. But it's like this is life. Well, you'll have kids someday, and you'll just be able to roll in it right here locally. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so we talk a little bit about how you, you've talked a little bit about the like what it means, like the, in in the bigger picture, right? And like what things used to be. But now we take now we're sort of in the modern day, like what do you do? Like what, what are some specifics about how now that you have a ranch, like you can't just let everything roam like totally free across the United States. You have a specific area. What do you do? Like what are some specifics of what you guys do in your ranch to ensure an ongoing, healthy, thriving ecosystem? Yeah. So we practice something called holistic management. And, uh, it's a, um, set of, uh, set of tools and a philosophy that, uh, um, is coined by Alan Savory, who's an ecologist and also worked with indigenous trackers in Africa. And, um, I love it how I have, you know, I have that in common with the founder of holistic management and also the founder of permaculture, Bill Mollison, is that they were both trackers and they both, uh, sort of went through their methodology and their philosophies and their ways of looking towards the future of agriculture because of their deep connection to nature and the time that they spent with indigenous cultures, um, specifically tracking. 
and so so basically the what what holistic management uh, takes into consideration is the ecosystem processes. So it's it's based on observation and uh, observation of the water and mineral cycle, uh, the biological communities or uh, biodiversity, how many different species can there be in uh, one square meter of land, um, and uh, also the way that the energy from the sun is transferred into uh, the plants and the trees and really working all of those ecosystem processes. So how we're uh, ranching is we're ranching like the prairie would ranch in a sense. Um, so uh, working on maximum biodiversity and these grasslands uh, that we um, steward in California are the most uh, biodiverse grasslands in terms of plant species in the whole United States. And so instead of coming in and saying, oh, well, I want to eat corn and I want to eat potatoes and I want to eat those staple foods and, you know, I'm going to get subsidized from the government to do it. So I'm just going to come in and plow, plow that prairie and, you know, reap that soil, which is what was done on this ranch uh, before. Um, we're coming in and saying, OK, how can we observe how this land is really going to thrive and then how can we work with nature and uh, for mutually beneficial relationships for the plants, the animals, the wildlife, the, the health of our livestock, the health of our families, and also create a lot of food on top of that. I mean, it's a really fun challenge. It's a fun way to challenge yourself. Okay, how can we be, you know, just providing more and more life the more we, uh, the more we steward the land and the more we use our human creativity through observation and just figuring out ways that we can just uh, create, build more soil and create more food. And so that's what we do. And, uh, what that looks like on the ground is that there's always living plants covering the soil 100% of the time, 365 days out of the year. And, um, Soil wants to be covered. <laughs> uh, so that's all those microbes uh, will stay happy in covered soil. It'll keep the right type of temperature. And so what we do is we'll, uh, we utilize uh, high stock density, which in a sense looks like um, how those wolves in Alaska would have had an impact on the herds of elk. Mm -hmm. Those elk moved from that meadow because the pack was hunting them. And they also moved because really it makes sense to leave behind that manure, leave behind the flies, let that decompose, let those grasses rejuvenate, recover before you return to that patch of ground again. So we use a lot of electric fencing. We go out on horseback and we move the cattle. 
we have a cattle call that, uh, you know, we, we call them through to the, to the next pasture. And, uh, you know, our kids are like the border collies. They, uh, <laughs> they run around and, and, um, you know, catch any straggling calves or anything like that. So that sounds awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. Just even to think that you can go in as an animal and take your food and put back manure and nourish so there is more food for you later. And that's something that nature figured out. So we just kind of have to ride this wave in a smart way. And instead, we went so far away from that. And I'm curious, what do you have to say to those people who say, well, we had to create farming in those monocrop ways in the corn and the soy and um, the um, the CAFO kind of raising animals on big piles of manure like we drove through um, Oklahoma and Texas Kansas. and Kansas a couple like five or six years ago and mm-hmm. I, I, I was like if I was to become vegan again this is the moment <laughs> like this is yeah. the moment and I know it does nothing to change anything but it there's just this visceral reaction to just this isn't right um and there's people who say well unless we do it this way there's no way to feed the people and it just goes counter intuitive to nature has a way of supporting what's there yeah absolutely so what do you what do you say about that is that even a valid argument that they have or is it just laziness and greed uh, yeah, I mean, our, you know, for instance, we're uh, we're in California and we're in, you know, the, one of the biggest agriculture states, you know, especially in terms of fresh fruits and and produce. Um, you know, they come from from California. Um, yet this coastal area where I live, um, just one uh, one landowner, for example, owns uh, seventy thousand acres of grasslands. And only about 5,000 of those acres are actually being utilized to produce uh, food in the way we produce that food. So there's and this whole sort of underused land that is just asking for stewardship and asking for for animals, because what happens when you let grasslands rest and, uh, you know, now that the 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 large uh, native herds are gone uh, is that those those grasslands oxidize and so they're 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 adding a problem to the um, the climate crisis instead of a solution they're no longer acting like that um, photosynthetic pump of pumping carbon uh, back into the soil because uh there the the cycle of those plants needs some sort of disturbance in order to rejuvenate hmm. so um there's a lot of land uh in California that's very underutilized all all over the world and a lot of that is grasslands um and i heard uh a conference a lot from a long time ago i can't remember who said it but really the what the shift needs to happen is i i think i think you're sort of uh getting at it as this sort of laziness and and greed is that people need to they need to just take care of themselves right they need to grow everything that they can for their own use 
and leave the things that are very difficult to grow in an urban or suburban area up to the farmers and ranchers. And so I took that message and I said, yeah, hey, everyone could grow some some tomatoes on their windowsill. Uh, they can take part in a community garden in the city. They could put, you know, put rooftop gardens in. Um, they could be part of growing a certain percentage of their own food, yet they're not necessarily going to be able to grow all of their protein. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's where we come in. And say, okay, well, we're, we will grow your protein for you. And, uh, that, but hey, well, you know, you guys, it's kind of up to everybody else to, to, to figure out the rest and have a relationship with someone who is going to grow your food or, or just do it yourself. <laughs> you know, it's very interesting because, um, until you start growing your own food, you don't really value why tomatoes are $4 or, you know, an avocado can be two ninety nine, and then yeah. I'm like, I will sell my tomatoes for a thousand dollars because I because <laughs> I only grew twelve. You know, yeah. It's, you you learn the preciousness of a crooked cucumber. So now when you go to the store, even if you're out of your own cucumbers, you're not you're you're buying the less perfect produce, and it it teaches you to have a relationship with food, um, and. I find what you're saying to be really important where we can all do our little part, even if we if we're not close to land and we're not archers. So you feel like there's plenty of space for us to do things more sustainably. I think things are being very um, in, in, things are very inefficient in terms of agriculture. And I think just the types of food it's it's not just one one quick fix everything is everything is interconnected um and it's it it's going to be a huge huge shift the way people think about food what they eat where it comes from um and really looking at how can i source quality and not just quantity like you said well yeah that avocado that's three dollars well gosh you're you're gonna need to eat a lot less food than a bag you know a bag of pota potato chips that might cost two dollars but it's not gonna really give you the type of nutrition that that you really need so um I, I think it's, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a big shift in, uh, in the way we, uh, connect with food and really, you know, looking at it, just, just shifting our viewpoint of, of, you know, even as we're just walking, maybe taking a hike out in nature, look around and ask yourself, okay, how can I glean nutrition from this landscape? How did my ancestors glean nutrition from this landscape and how can I observe and interact with the earth to provide my nutrition? And I talk about a story in the book where um, I, I, you know, I did a lot of wilderness survival uh, in, in my training and ate a lot of wild foods. And so, and I also worked on or, an organic farm uh, when organic farming was really just getting going. Uh, and, you know, organic food is great 
And, you know, more and more people are realizing the importance of soil health in, in food. But really, it has a lot to do with the, the species of, of plant or fruit itself. And, uh, you know, I, I would go out and I would gather, uh, fresh shoots of cattail, for instance, and make myself a little, you know, cook over the fire a cattail stir fry. And, um, I would cook as much as I would normally cook from, uh, carrots and celery from the organic farm that I was working on, but I would get about a quarter of the way through eating an equal amount in volume of the cattails, and I would be completely full and mm -hmm. content, mm -hmm. and I would not need to eat for <laughs> for hours and hours, um, whereas uh, I would you know I, I would take four times as much of the organic vegetables to give me as much energy and nutrition as it is from wild food. So, you know, there's, there's definitely something to that. <laughs> um, how can we eat, eat, get, gain more nutrition off of less food? I mean, that's why I, I can nearly live on, on bone broth, <laughs> right? Um, and, uh, maybe throw in some vegetables and, and, uh, raw milk and, and a steak once in a while and a cup of coffee in the morning. Um, <laughs> that's critical. Yeah. But, you know, we can, we can really get by with a lot less, <laughs> I think is the, is the point I'm trying to make. That's great. Well, you know, a lot of what you, uh, you, you talk about, you've talked about grass fed meat versus commercial meat before, and it sort of plays into this whole thing, right? What it like the healthfulness and both for us and for the animals and for the whole life cycle of the soil and the, and the animals. So can you tell us a little bit of the differences between grass fed and commercial meat? Yeah. So with grass fed, the animals are living a natural life. And by, um, you know, I know the word natural can sort of take on a lot of different meanings and people have sort of messed that up in the food industry. But, um, what I, what I mean by that is they're eating what their bodies have been designed to eat, you know, for ca cattle, for instance, are, are ruminants. They, um, they need to eat, uh, diversity of plants and the lignin from the stalks of the plants, not just the, the seeds or the grains. So in order for their digestion to function, they need to be eating that type of diet because when they are raised in a feedlot, for instance, they can develop a condition called subacute acidosis. And basically what that means is that, um, they, uh, you know, they, they have this, this painful condition and sometimes it can be, uh, fatal and it, it essentially, you know, it can, it can only be, uh, relieved by antibiotics and even those antibiotics, they can, um, uh, they can get, um, you know, they can have so many, uh, so much of that in them. And it's also, uh, the same antibiotics that are used in human medicine. So those medications are overused in feedlots and bacteria starts to become resistant to them where they, they don't work anymore. So, um, when cattle are fed an unnatural diet, for instance, in a feedlot, it can cause them a lot of 
pain and digestion and even death before they even get to the point of, you know, being finished for, for meat. So, um, I think that, uh, you know, the other big differences, uh, in the, the quality of the meat, uh, are grass fed meat compared to feedlot meat is there's, uh, less saturated fat, less cholesterol. Um, it's really high in vitamin E, beta carotene, vitamin C, um, a number of really good fats like the omega three, uh, fatty acids and also, um, CLAs. Um, that have been linked to sort of fighting, uh, um, certain, certain diseases. So, um, grazing animals can have three to five times more CLAs than animals fattened, uh, on grain. And, you know, although the food from a feedlot might be cheap and convenient, you know, grab a McDonald's hamburger for a couple bucks, um, you know, you just got to realize, you know, what, what choice you're, you're making by, by doing that. You know, those animals are living in a stressful environment, oftentimes abused. The air and the land and the water around them is polluted. You know, they've got unnecessary use of hormones and antibiotics just to stay alive. Um, a lot of times the farm work, the farm workers are very stressed and low paid and it's those those feedlots consolidate farms and so then you get a die off and a loss of family farms and you get food with with less nutrition as i was as i was mentioning before so you know when we choose to eat meat and eggs um and dairy uh, from animals that are raised on pasture, um, then we're not only improving the welfare of the animals, um, but we're also saying, okay, I'm going to make a choice right now to put an end to the environmental degradation that's being caused by the types of agriculture um, that are industrialized. So many times people put you know, they kind of blame the cattle. Oh, cattle are bad. And no, I mean, come on. They're, they're incredible beings. They, you know, they walk around on four legs. They're just trying to live a life that they're designed to live. Why are we making them bad? <laughs> it's really the people that are controlling the environment that they live in that we really have to look at and, and stop. So. Well, I think people don't realize that there were before this country was sort of cleared of the bison, there were more bison roaming around throughout the country than we have on all of these feedlots today. Yeah, absolutely. So, and they were all pooping and farting yeah. and <laughs> everything else. Yeah, so. so they were all they were all, you know, joined in hand and or hoof hoof and hoof with the environment and um, you know, so I I really think in my like Galena and I love, you know, supporting the grass-fed movement and for our health, for the welfare of the animals, for the welfare of the environment. And also, I never really considered for the for the good of the farmers or the ranchers themselves. So that's a really good that's four good reasons right there to 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 send your dollars to the to the right place. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and there's a way in which we are so much less wasteful and respectful of the whole animal um, 
I I've only been in the States for six years and I come from a culture where my family always had somebody raising an animal for us. So in spring, mm -hmm. we'll get a whole sheep. And in summer, you get a couple of roosters. And in fall, um, you get a turkey. And in winter, you get a pig. Um, in, in my home country, um, cows are for dairy, not for meat. Mm -hmm. And so we, beef is a very rare thing. And when you eat beef, it has to be veal. And that's just heartbreaking. So almost no one does it. Um, so, but we would have these actual animals and you knew who grew them and they would bring the animal to our yard and just leave it there. And so, yeah. you know, that your family's responsible for this one being and nothing gets wasted, nothing, not like, not the skin, nothing gets wasted and it makes you so respectful. Um, it's so much harder to throw that away and you learn how to use every little piece of an animal. Um, and I feel like here people are so, they just don't know. And, and so people are, it's easier to throw things away and to eat, have a lot of, or feel like, oh, I can just buy more. Yeah. Uh, but that comes from a living being. It, it's, you can't just buy more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and just knowing like, this is our sheep for this year. We just get one and there's no more until next year. Like, yeah. And, and I'd also like to add that the same goes with produce. Um, you know, every time you eat a carrot, you realize that there, that is, in a sense, there are many deaths that have come from mm. produce. And they might be many small deaths. Um, that land that may have been tilled to grow that carrot was once home to you know, many, many species of, um, voles or some people call them field mice and, uh, many aerial predators that fed on those voles, uh, deer that grazed the, the, uh, land prior to that tilling. So just, you know, just because you're, you're eating meat, uh, doesn't mean that, um, that's the only thing that's taking life. Mm -hmm. You know, vegans and vegetarians, they're also taking life by eating. And it's just a different, it's just on a much larger, larger scale. And I think there's even more life lost by, um, you know, eating, uh, crops that are grown in monocultures because you gotta think of, all of the energy that goes into creating those crops that are not grown based on the way nature designed things to be stewarded and uh, grown and the cycles uh, of life. So, um, you know, we're very reverent when we talk about, you know, taking the life of an animal to feed to feed people. And we have a lot of respect and, uh, you know, we, we understand that, um, that, that part of living is, is, is killing, whether that be a plant or whether that be an animal, um, that is part, part of the cycle of life. And so I think the key is that understanding when you're eating a salad, you're just, you need to be just as much reverent as when you're eating a steak to the life that was taken by, in order to nourish your body. That's great. 
as a as a daily caterpillar chaser and killer, <laughs> I can tell you that I I yeah. hold that every day because I'm like you are eating my arugula. That is not okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, I... and and what what gives what gives the you know the caterpillar how how can you feel okay killing a caterpillar and not a, a sheep where you're going to actually eat the sheep and every single part of it and it's going to provide you nourishment? I mean, do you eat the caterpillar? No, I would be terrified. Too. Yeah. So, I mean, but you're killing something in order to eat right. arugula. Right. And which, even though... Which has you, much less nutrition probably than the caterpillar, if I have to think about it. Yeah. yeah. I will say that somebody here in this room tried to catch a release system for a... For a grasshopper. For a grasshoppers that I were was eating taking our them, stuff. I was taking them to my office, Donega, and I was releasing them um, in the bushes. <laughs> but... We don't. I don't. I don't know that grasshoppers always find their way home like a homing pigeon. But yeah. it seemed like the same grasshopper was back in our tower garden the very next day because her office is only like less than a mile away. So, ah, yeah, it could be. Yeah, I don't know. So, up in the Bay Area, we can easily send people to you for amazing, um, uh, amazing food. But what would a lot of our listeners are not in the Bay Area, unfortunately. What kind of things could would somebody look for when they want to like sort of develop a relationship with a, a farmer like you? Like, what are the questions they can ask to find out if that's this is the farmer for them? Yeah, ideally, um, if you're in an area where where you can do this, you, you go out and do your first person verification, and uh, that means go out to the farm or ranch because you know people can talk a good talk, and there's scammers in every business. So um, uh, yeah, I would say ideally, you go out and and you visit. Uh, the place where your food is coming from and, um, you know, whether that be your, your carrots, Hey, do they have, um, a hedgerows that are attracting beneficial, uh, beneficial insects? Are they, you know, do they have habitat still for the deer that they're fencing out of, uh, their crop that once used to be the, you know, the home of that deer? Um, so, you know, just go and look and see, see for yourself is the best. And then, you know, second best is, uh, you know, there's a, a few, um, trusted certifications like uh we're we're uh certified by the American Grass Fed Association um and it's not you know it's outside of the government and uh it's a you know third party verification um you really can't trust organic anymore um just because it's been so overused, kind of like the term natural, <laughs> mm -hmm. you can still be buying natural meat and it can be coming from a feedlot. So, um, mm. you know, organic has sort of gotten to that point where it's, um, it's being, you know, brought in from other countries where the standards are really low and uh, commingled with, um, you know, organic produce from this country. And so you just really don't know what you're getting unless you're, again, sourcing it directly from the farm. Um, and then, um, yeah, just just if you can't uh, if you can't find a farmer uh, in your area, then, um, you know, or if you don't know a farmer, go find one, talk to people, uh, uh, go to the farmer's market. Uh, most most communities have farmer's markets, at least in, in the big uh, in the big hubs. 
Um, and then if you can't find a farmer, then just become one yourself and start, start growing your own food and, you know, and seek joy and recreation and health out of that instead of looking at it as a chore or work that, uh, you know, yeah, you, even though you just have those 12 tomatoes, that was, you know, that was pleasure. You know, you mm-hmm. did it with your kids. It was time that you spent with them of planting a seed and watching it sprout and taking care of something and uh, nurturing something and, and having it respond to your nurturing. <laughs> That's amazing. This kind of leads us into our next question of how do we teach kids in more urban environments? And I'm sure that some of your visitors on the farm, right, who live in in San Francisco and around, how do we teach those urban raised kids about farming and animals and natural cycles and how to put back more in nature than we take? What are some practical things we can do? Yeah, I mean, gardening is great, taking them out in into nature um, and immersing them in, in the wilderness, uh, read, read, reading my book. <laughs> and you can see the way that that I was mentored uh, to uh, absorb my senses in nature, because when we have all of our senses engaged in uh, a natural setting to where it's not, you know, someone in front of the classroom dictating what you should learn and how you should learn it, but instead you're engaged in all of your senses, maybe with your back up against a tree and uh, your only inputs are those directly from nature, uh, that is a great way for kids to really be able to express their um, I- inherent uh, wildness and uh, feel that connection to earth that is isn't going to go away. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you, you can't really teach nature in a classroom. You really have to and expect it to stick. <laughs> you really need to uh, in, facilitate experiences for children, whether that be in a school garden where uh, they're tending those plants and they're watching that caterpillar crawl across that arugula and and checking out all of the patterns and the details and catching chickens. And um, so so you know, really having experiences that, that will stick with them. I mean, you probably can think of experiences from your childhood that you, you can remember, like you, you can pull up like you were there. Oh, yeah. And most likely that's because you were engaged. You were in the present moment. Your senses were engaged and, and you know, you, you were there and you can pull that back up. So that's the kinds of things we want to provide our, our children is what are those types of experiences where they feel fully alive, full senses, fully engaged. And, uh, they, they feel that, that connection and it's not being told to them, but they're really discovering it. That's so beautiful. One way that we've set this up, um, we live in a kind of like an attached house downtown in Southern California, Um, And one way that we've set it up in our small outside garden patio is we have a worm compost 
Mm-hmm. So it's for rotting our organic produce. And then we only have, we have a hydroponic garden and we have a couple of earth um, based um, earth boxes earth boxes for our trailing cucumbers and zucchini and tomatoes and things like that. Mm-hmm. And we, that's we... how we support the caterpillars and the, <laughs> yeah, gotcha. the grasshoppers and the, and the, grasshoppers and the, the possums. <laughs> and we, we take our own compost that we made from our own organic matter, like coffee grounds and, and eggshells and and things like that and then putting them back into our own soil instead of buying fertilizer and so just kind of rotating the worm tea and the compost and all of that going into our own stuff and it's kind of like its own its own self-contained little patio garden cycle yeah and it's really small and we only have like (laughs) what do we have like 2,000 worms like it's not like this massive (laughs) worm pile but when we have friends who visit with their kids, it's like, do you want to see the worms? That's kind of like our way in. <laughs> and all the kids are like, ew, yeah, of course. And it's fun. And yeah. for, for city people, that might be something easy. Um, we haven't set up a, a maggot countertop farm yet. I don't think we're that. Mealworms? <laughs> Mealworms. Like, we're yeah. not that close to. We don't really. We're not ready to eat insects yet. But that would be <laughs> another way to to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's great. So we've read your book, love it, and but I want you to tell listeners about this book. We're so we were so excited to get it. It's beautiful. It's so well written and it's riveting. And so tell us a little bit about it. Like what should what are they going to get out of it, and uh, why should they read it? Yeah, I think. Uh, there, there's not really any other book that I found out there like this. Um, there's a lot of books of sort of uh, men out there conquering the wilderness and, uh, you know, going into survival situations. Uh, however, there's, you know, there's not any books out there about, you know, a young woman discovering herself through through nature and um, through indigenous teachings and then, uh, you know, naturally, organically emerging out of that uh, a vision for for the future. Um, and I think, you know, it, it speaks to it speaks to everyone. But in particular, it speaks to uh, um, mothers, um, young, young young women, girls that are really, you know, looking for what, what is their role? I mean, there's, there's so much right now going on with, okay, how, how can we really be, uh, you know, be powerful in a way that is going to make a lasting impact. And uh, also, um, you know, in a sense, take, take care of that, that nurturing that uh, we feel in, inside of ourselves. And so it's a lot of stories of, of adventure. You know, I wanted it to be engaging, but um, where, you know, where you learn something as well, um, but you're engaged the whole way. I didn't want it to be a, a technical or boring book where, you know, you fell asleep after reading the first page, but, um, you know, really, really wanted it to be uh, something that people that you know the the feeling like can come through the words and uh and and if you've never experienced uh, you know tracking a large predator or sort of being on the edge of survival uh in you know in the wilderness then 
and you've always wondered sort of what that would feel like. I hope by reading this book, you can, you can get that, that feeling of, of, you know, the opportunities that are out there of, of being fully alive by expressing our, um, sort of inherent traits of being, being wild, <laughs> like you said, being, uh, an animal. So, uh, learning, learning what it's like to live like a, a wild animal. Um, and then also learning what it really means to be human and uh, human in a sense of, of uh, being a part of nature and uh, stewarding land uh, like our indigenous ancestors did. You know, before reading your book, I had, and I do a lot of thinking on that, but I had never had the viewpoint of, I've always viewed humans as sort of a, and I'm sorry to say this out loud, but kind of like a parasite on earth Yeah. Uh, because of how much I love nature and how much destruction I've seen and how, um, how much grief I've experienced through watching that. And um, especially with like wildfires going and floods and these horrible things that have happened. Um, and then I was like, wow, we could actually be the species that nature allowed us to become and live in harmony and actually put more back in. So it gave me so much hope back because out of grief, if hope doesn't come, then then the, the whole cycle of grief doesn't complete either. Um, so for me, that really came full circle. And that's kind of like a personal change that I experienced being transformed through reading your book. Um, and I look forward to um, reading it to my kid one day. Oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, very, very exciting. I know that your book right now, as we're recording, is still in the pre-sale period. And there is a special um, audio recording that people can get if they order before the end of September. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and where they can get it? Yeah. So uh, if you go uh, on the pre-sale page, uh, all of this information uh, is available on my website, donagamarkegard.com, D-O-N-I-G-A-M-A-R-K-E-G-A-R-D.com. And uh, that's links to the pre-sale page. And you should get it sooner uh, than, you know, you would get it if you waited until it comes out in, in bookstores. And then you also get a 30-minute uh, uh, tutorial on on tracking um, and, uh, you know, sort of a beginner's guide to uh, tips to be more attuned uh, to nature and uh, the secrets and the stories that that nature holds. So, um, you know, it's a great a great little bonus if you uh, go on to that pre-sale uh, page and get the book. And then if you are in the Bay Area, we are doing a book launch on October 29th on the ranch. And uh, you're all invited to come and, uh, you know, experience ranch life and uh, in sort of celebration of of the book. Um, and I'll be doing um, some uh, some book signings at different bookstores in the uh, Washington and uh, Portland area, uh, C you know, Seattle, Bainbridge Island, uh, Portland, uh, the Bay Area, of course, uh, Palo Alto, um, and then possibly down in the in the L.A. area. So, again, just just check my website for uh, for any updates. Very cool. And what we promise to do is a to have all of this in the show notes and b to keep you guys updated uh, on our 
Facebook page and in our newsletter about any of these book signings that are coming up. So you can stay connected through us, um, through us as well. So as we kind of land our conversation with you, um, what is the next exciting thing on the calendar for you? The book signing sounds amazing in October, but as the fall is coming, fall season is coming, what is, what does ranch life have for you that's different than the summer? Yeah, things start to slow down already. We're noticing a big shift in the, the days are getting shorter. So, um, you know, that means we, we get to be, be in as a family together a little earlier and, uh, I'm really, I, I cook everything from, from scratch. And uh, the more I talk to people, I realize how rare that is. Um, you know, I, I source all of my ingredients from, you know, either from our ranch or from, uh, farms nearby. And, uh, I cook, I cook, um, I cook dinner every night and we eat everything from, from scratch. And so, um, I think that's what I really look forward to in the fall and winter that, uh, I get to, I, I get to spend more time in the kitchen and with my family and just really, uh, enjoying the flavors and the hard work of, uh, of the, of the season and, uh, you know, time to, time to reflect. I'm also thinking about maybe, um, you know, putting together some sort of lifestyle cookbook of how we can, uh, bring back that, the, the home cook and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just, just like grow, you know, how growing your own food can be, uh, recreation and health that, uh, cooking that and preparing that food for your family can, Oh my gosh, just provides so many benefits, um, that, uh, you know, that, you know, are, are rarely realized with, with the modern day family. That sounds awesome. It's something certainly we would be interested in because, uh, we're passionate about cooking food ourselves and shopping locally, growing as much as we can and, uh, eating healthfully and just, yeah, so it sounds wonderful. It sounds amazing. I yeah. can't wait for that book to come out and for and in the meantime, maybe I'll just email you and say, "Can you tell me your secret <laughs> bone broth recipe?" Yeah. And, uh, it, there's no secret. I mean, you just throw bones in a pot with some veggies, and I mean, sure, you know, you're never gonna sell it like that. You can never open a chain of bone broth recipes. Uh, bone brotheries. Brothers. I'm gonna start a brothel. <laughs> Want to join? Like, ah. Oh, that sounds too. Uh, how about the bone brothel? Wait, that doesn't yeah. work either. <laughs> yeah, that's that's even worse. Well, I think she's gonna um, release it at Burning Man next year. Excellent. <laughs> that is hilarious. But you know that that is a that is a good niche market right there uh, for uh, nourishing brothels. Yeah. Don, Donaga, thank you so much for coming on. Um, loved talking to you, and we look forward to seeing you at the end of October. Yeah. Great. All right. Yeah, I look forward to it. That'll be amazing. Thanks again. Have a wonderful day on the ranch. Okay. Thank you. Hey, don't forget, Donaga's wonderful book, Don Again, Tracking the Wisdom of the Wild, is available now for pre-sale. Order it now through the publisher's website and get a free bonus 30-minute audio direct from Donaga. The link is in the show notes, and because it comes direct from the publisher, you'll probably get your book before everyone else.
If you like today's show and want more episodes like it, you can help us by rating and reviewing the show wherever you subscribe. That means iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, or in the podcast app on your phone. Do you know somebody who can benefit from today's episode? Share it right now from the show notes, which you can always find at eatmovelive52.com slash notes. And that funk that's playing behind me is called Proto-Funk by Kevin McLeod. Thanks, and talk to you soon.